0: Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program.
1: This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. How has the U.S. Department of Homeland Security enhanced its employee engagement efforts? What has it been doing differently to attract and retain a skilled workforce? And how is it using technology and innovation to change the way it operates? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Angela Bailey, former Chief Human Capital Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Angie, welcome to the show. It's great to have you.
0: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: So, Angie, could you tell us more about the mission of the Chief uh, Human Capital Officer within the Department of Homeland Security? How is that office organized, and who does the Chico report to within that big department?
0: Well, in some ways, I feel like I report to all of 250,000 employees, but technically, who I report to is the undersecretary for management uh, within within the management organization. And of course, then the undersecretary for management reports to uh, the secretary um, of of the agency. So um, that's who I technically report to. The mission of the office is, as you can imagine, I'm responsible for everything that impacts the lives of our employees and, quite frankly, their families as well. So, you know, it begins with like the recruiting, the hiring, the pay, the compensation, the learning, the development, their health um, and their safety and their welfare and and a little known fact, um, also responsible for the for the dogs um, and the horses when it comes to like from a safety and a health standpoint. So there's um, so it's a it's a really large uh, operation that has multiple tentacles. Uh, it includes inclusive diversity, also executive resources, labor and employee relations, classification, staffing, um, you know the statistics, the data analytics, and so. Um just basically anything that you can think of that would that would actually affect the employee life cycle. Uh I I have my finger on the pulse of that throughout the department.
1: And, and so, you know, when you think of a Chico, there's the Chico the Chief Human Capital Officer Council. I'm wondering, can you give us a sense of what uh, you kind of gave us a sampling of your portfolio, but what are the responsibilities of a Chico day-to-day and day-to-day operations and how, in your case, during your tenure, how does that role support the mission of the agency or the department?
0: Well, from a from a day-to-day standpoint, so you're right. I have this really large portfolio, but to your point, but what does my day look like and what do I do? And so my responsibility is, a couple of things. One, it's to set the strategic vision of where uh, we really need to go as a department. And then to be able to influence that in such a way is to get uh, 22 different components to kind of line up and be around that vision and be able to, to move forward then with whatever it is that we're trying to implement on behalf of the employees. And so sometimes that involves working with Congress. Sometimes it involves working with OMB or OPM, other federal agencies, working with our own component HR directors, as well as our component leadership to really like understand what are the issues, what are they facing, and then how can we develop and, and implement programs that are really in their best interest. So, you know, day-to-day, what does that mean for me? That means a lot of meetings. It means a lot of phone calls, a lot of interaction with people, a lot of conversations with people, and not just, by the way, leadership, but having conversations with the employees as well. Not only my own employees, but the employees that are within DHS to really just understand, like, what's the heartbeat of DHS? What is going on? And then, again, how do we do things to, like, that really – integrates um, all these different policies and processes and procedures in such a way that it just makes their, as I like to say, their human experience so much better when they're at work um, on, on a daily basis.
1: So, Angie, would you tell us more about how you work with the DHS components responsible for human capital workforce efforts across the enterprise?
0: Well, it's a real collaborative uh, arrangement. I don't actually, none of them actually report to me. And so what what I really need to do is, like, have the opportunity to, again, like pick up the phone or email them and just have conversations with them and say, you know, what are your specific challenges? What are some of the things that you're facing? How can we work together to help you if it's an HRIT thing? As an example, I co-lead many of the different councils within DHS. So as an example, I co-lead with the CIO um, the work that we're doing on HRIT. So that might be about having a con- conversation conversation with them on how do we make sure that we have a really integrated and smoothly running performance management system or a hiring and a staffing system or how do we connect with the ISMIS, which is our security system, how do we make sure that that's connected with our HR system? So what you will really find is that how I really work with the DHS components um, is to say to them, what are your needs? And then what are the department needs? And then how do I make sure that I recognize that they have unique individual needs, but then where do those fit into the overarching DHS um, agenda or strategy? And then again, how do you integrate all that together so that we can deliver something on behalf of the components that meets the intent of the components and meets the intent of DHS.
1: You know, I was wondering, given your portfolio, given your duties and responsibilities and your time that you've spent at uh, the Department of Homeland Security during that specific period. And more recently, what are say the three I, top challenges you've faced and how did you uh, seek to address those challenges?
0: There's a, I would say that there's a couple of challenges that that come to mind. One is we are a really large department. And I often like to say that in in many ways, you know, we are just, we're a loose federation. And what I mean by that is, yes, we are all completely together because, you know, we're under one umbrella called DHS, but the components, many of them have their own appropriations. And so they actually have the ability, if they wanted to, to just strike out on their own and to do whatever whatever they wanted that was in their best interest. So one of the challenges that I have is, is how, I, and I kind of touched on this a little you know, in the previous question, but how do I make sure that whatever it is that, that they individually need, their unique needs and their unique challenges, How do I make sure that I honor those and address those, but at the same time, help them move forward in a very collaborative way with regard to to where DHS itself wants to go. And so that can be a challenge, right, because, you know, sometimes one component might have the money to be able to do something that another component doesn't have the money to do so. You know, a challenge might be getting that particular component with the money to actually kind of pony up and maybe lead the way in something that we're trying to do, but do it in such a way that it's then scalable across all of DHS, and it's not just for that particular component. So that's one challenge. The second challenge is we have employees all all over the world. Um, They're not just you know confined within um, in the contiguous United States, and so. Uh, challenges is like thinking through everything that they might need that may be different. Like a a border patrol agent, what they need on the Southwest border is might be different than what a border patrol agent needs on the North border. But it's also uniquely and very different from what a TSO, a transportation security officer might need um, in California versus if they lived in Montana and then that could be different for what a FEMA responder needs with regard to what, you know what kind of disasters they might be responding to and then yeah on top of that you got HR specialists and budget analysts and contract specialists and facility experts and so you have all these people with all these different needs and different experiences and how do you again make sure that you address as much as you can their unique needs but yet you do things in such a way that it becomes scalable and usable across all of DHS, because there will be some guiding principles and things that are really important for us as an as a collective agency. Um, and it's just very challenging trying to address the unique with um, what I would say with uh, where you wanna go from a standardization or a consistency standpoint. And then the third challenge is, is that I think is another one. the The third one that kind of comes to mind is just simply the fatigue uh, that goes on with a workforce that's stretched to its max, has seen crisis after crisis, um, is is in the middle of a of a pandemic that nobody really, you know, fully understands or knows where it, what's gonna what's lurking around the corner, what's next. And so I think the one that weighs heaviest on my mind and in my heart is how do I make sure that I take care of the workforce in such a way that they're able to get the mission accomplished, but at the end of the day, they have some kind of quality experience. And that I think about this as the whole person, which means that I also have to, not that I have to, but I do care about their families. I care about their communities in which they live in. And so I think that 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 becomes, it becomes a challenge, I think, really, quite frankly, for all of us. And so, the way that I try to address that is to just have conversations with them, to reach out to them, to be able to touch their lives, and they touch my lives. They share so many things with me on a daily basis. They share, you know, the the northern lights. They share moose. They share that they've had babies born. They share that. Um, you know, one of their colleagues committed suicide, they shared that that they've lost somebody to COVID. So I think by actually taking the time to listen to our workforce and listen to their stories and understand that there's, there's a human behind all of this is one of the best ways that I've found to addressing these many challenges uh, that I face on a daily basis.
1: Um, I'm wondering, uh, Angie, uh, given your tenure in, in the federal government, in public service, but also uh, during the time you've spent at DHS, what has surprised you most?
0: <laughs> That's a great question as well. Um, so I, I would say what has probably surprised me most is, and I say this in a good way, is like how the spirit of the DHS workforce The fact that no matter what is thrown their way, no matter the fact that they might be railed on against uh, by Congress or they might be railed on, um, you know, by the press or by the public or whatever, every single day they still get up and they still come to work and they still do what they believe is the right thing to do. And so I think it's it has surprised me in a really good way, not because I don't believe in, in you know, people, the goodness of people. It's not that. It's just, I guess, in some ways, it's surprising like how the human spirit that's behind this DHS workforce and just how incredibly committed that they are to carrying out their, their mission. And so I it's inspiring every day when you get the opportunity to talk to them and, and you see all the challenges and things that they personally and professionally go through. And yet, they still rise to the occasion, and they still make sure that the planes take off, and they still make sure that the border is as as secure as they can possibly make it, and they still make sure that people get you know the the things that they need d- during a disaster, and and they do all of that a lot of times at their own personal cost. Um, they still make sure that the president is protected, uh, and in you know and the cabinet officials, they do so many things. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's surprising, but it's surprising in a very humbling way.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, i asked this question a number of times and it's the, it's the spirit, the resiliency of, of, of the workers that, uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a pleasant surprise. And I'm wondering about your career path, Angie, um, could you tell us more about your tenure in federal service?
0: Well, my, I would say that my career path is not traditional. It's kind of a zigzag, and you know, I started out as a GS2 at the age of 17 with the Social Security Administration, and then I went to the Department of Defense, and I had held a variety, I worked at a variety of defense installations, Army, and and defense agencies. But by and large, I was a labor and employee relations officer for almost tw- a better part of 20 years of my career. And then I went to the Office of Personnel Management, where I got my first SES position, and then I slid over into recruitment and hiring, which was, you know, kind of like a brand new role for me. And then from at OPM, I also um, was the associate director for employee services, so I had basically everything that I have now. And then I ended there as the chief operating officer. So then. I got to learn all about IT and finances and contracting and facilities and security and safety, et cetera. Um, and so that I, to me, that prepared me, all of that prepared me for the job that I have right now within within DHS as the Chico. And um, with that, then it really prepared me incredibly well to take on this role. So when I'm co-leading something, like I mentioned earlier, like HRIT or. I'm doing something with a contract or, or workforce health and safety came to me, I at least had a very fundamental understanding of all those different program areas, because of this really expansive career. And the fact that I just took opportunities to just learn and grow, and didn't really always try to seek out what's the next promotion or the next promotion. You know, sometimes I just said, hey, you know, what's interesting and or what's a good experience that's going to perhaps set me up for uh, where I want to go in the future. And and that has, I I believe, served me well.
1: That's interesting. You know, it served you well and you, it's apparently you've served the the country well. I was wondering, given that background, um, what are the characteristics in your mind of an effective leader? And perhaps you could tell us during your tenure in the federal government, what leadership principles have you
0: employed? Well, for me, I think there's a couple of things. One, I really think in order to be an uh, an effective leader, you have to be authentic. You have to be yourself. I tell people this all the time. You you can't be me and I'm not going to be you. So, while you may gain some, you know, maybe some insight or some good tips off of observing me or emulating me, at the end of the day, you have to be you. And people will respond to that. People really want to know that what they see is what they get. And so I think that that is incredibly helpful. If you're having a bad day, it doesn't mean that you should be mean to people, but I don't think there's anything wrong with saying this day is not going well. And of all days, In particular, this day, I need your help. You know, I need to lean on you because I just can't seem to get it right today. I think people appreciate that. And so a guiding principle for me is I will, and I heard this the other day from someone who works for me, and I just thought it was the wonderful thing. My guiding principle is to always bring my best self to work. Every day, just bring my best self, right? And what I mean by that is, I need to be authentic, but I need to do it in such a way that it is is the best part of my authentic self, right? Not not all all of my works and things like that. And so that's a guiding principle for me. A second guiding principle is that I care. I care about the mission. I care about the employees. I want to make sure that I'm doing everything that I possibly can to make their life, and I do mean their life, including outside of work, as best as I can possibly make, make that by, by simply caring about them. And so I don't have like this whole laundry list and, you know, where I go through and, you know, it's situational or it's a servant leadership and it's all those things. I think it is all those things, but it's wrapped up, but I just have, I was, I have three guiding principles, but as I said, one is bring my best authentic self to work. Two, care about the mission and care about the people that I interact with on a daily basis, and three, be true to my North Star. And and so to me, that means that I follow what I believe is morally and ethically the right thing to do, and I stay true to that North Star.
1: How has DHS focused on employee engagement and readiness? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Angela Bailey, former Chief Human Capital Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Angie, I'd like for you, if you could, uh, to outline for us the human capital workforce development strategy during your time at uh, DHS. What were some of the key priorities? What are some of the key priorities for realizing that vision?
0: So over the time, over time, I would say that the our strategy, or at least our key priorities, have shifted sometimes, in, you know, over time. But generally speaking, um, our our strategy is really to deliver to the department and to the workforce and to their families like the absolute best experience, human experience that we can possibly deliver to them. And so it's that simple. And so for me, it's like, so then whenever you look at your key priorities, some of the things that have always been a key priority are employee and family readiness has always been at the top of the list. What can we do to ensure that our employees and their families have everything that they, we can possibly provide them so that they can carry out the mission on behalf of DHS for the American public? A second one was our HRIT efforts, making sure that our systems and everything integrated together so that we could give them as much of a seamless um, experience as we possibly could. And we wouldn't frustrate the daylights out of them while they were just trying to simply do their jobs. Inclusive diversity is another key priority. Because you can, diversity, sometimes we think diversity is all about like, almost like Noah's Ark, right? Gotta have two of everything. But at the end of the day, it's not really about that. It's actually about creating an environment where people feel safe enough to have conversations, where they feel included, where they feel like you recognize that that they're struggling today, may not struggle every day, but today they're struggling, and to have a little bit of forgiveness in your heart for the fact that they're struggling today. And so just finding ways to create that inclusive environment was another key priority. Another one is delivering on our cyber talent management system, because this was something that that we knew that we wanted to do, true civil service reform. So it really goes beyond just like, developing and implementing something that was for a cyber workforce. It was, how do we ensure that we set DHS up for not just for today, but into the future? And how do we create this brand new civil service that we've all talked about for years and years, but nobody's ever actually done anything about implementing. And so um, I'm really proud of the team because that is something uh, that we did deliver on, and then the final priority, key priority that we had was HR Academy. How do we ensure that we provide our HR specialists like the best experience ever from a personal and professional development, so that they could learn and they can grow? Now, having said all of that, those are only like I think five priorities. That doesn't by any means uh, take away from all the other things that, that we're doing, but you know, just I just those are the five key things that the human capital leadership across DHS, we kind of all put our hands in the middle. We all said, you know what, we're all in this together. This is what we're gonna put our focus on. This is what we're gonna need to put our money toward. And this is what we're committed to getting done. And, And I think that that's important because otherwise what you have is your strategies start falling apart if you don't all put your hands in the middle, one on top of another and say, we've got this, we've got this together, break, break, let's go. And so that's that's actually what we've focused in on, I would say, for like the past five years. And we've made um, really significant progress on that. We've delivered CTMS. We've improved our federal employee viewpoint scores by, um, I think, over 11 to 13 percentage points. We've um, we've integrated many of our IT systems that we said that that we wanted to do, and the list goes on and on of the accomplishments that were made because we had a strategy that was very simple: just elevate this human experience that we're providing to our employees and their families, and then go after the things that we knew would would actually make a difference.
1: You know, Andrew, I was wondering: was, are there any specific internal drivers, uh, which I think you alluded to, or external trends? that helped shape and inform that strategy you talked about and kind of shaped the five areas that you alluded to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I will tell you what shaped the internal driver for employee and family readiness was me going out and sitting down with spouses of fallen agents and officers. Um, I did that, I want to say in the summer of 2018, or I think it was the summer of 2018. I sat down with them, and just talk to them and just listen to them. And out of that was born then employee and family readiness. So, it, it, you know, that to me was a key internal driver. A key internal driver for the HR Academy is the fact that you have this, you have a hard working, dedicated HR professionals who needed. S- somebody and someone, I think, to actually say to them, you're important enough for us to invest in you. Like we're going to give you the kinds of professional training that you need. We're going to give you the personal coaching and mentoring that you deserve. We're going to really help elevate you in such a way that you're able to perform your job so that you can then perform the job on behalf of um the the employees within DHS and so those are two like internal things external factors that really drive into our strategy is is whenever you kind of look around and you say to yourself there's got to be a better way to do hiring and recruiting and stuff within the federal government and we all sit around and complain about um the hiring within the federal government it takes too long it's too hard it's too complicated it's too 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 everybody has studied it for years and years and years and for me it was like we have to stop admiring the problem and we have to actually do something to fix it and so that's why we delivered um, our cyber talent management system based on upholding the merit system principles, but also recognizing that this is a brand new world. This is not World War II time era. This is the 21st century. So those are just some examples of like internal drivers and then an external driver that really shaped our strategy.
1: That's a wonderful sort of setup into my next question, which is delving a little deeper Um, I'd like to learn more about the efforts during your tenure uh, as DHS Chico to emphasize that employee workforce engagement with the goal of improving the agency-wide employee satisfaction. How has the Employee and Family Readiness Program enhanced workforce engagement, and what more needs to be done, Angie, in this area?
0: When I was first hired to come in, one of the things that Rustio and uh, Chip Foljam asked me to do is they said, you know, look, we we really need you, your help in getting your arms around this, you know, this whole concept of called employee engagement. And at the time, I think they they had contractors and they had fancy brochures and you know they had all these things and they had a comms strategy and stuff. And and the thing that that I remember saying to them is, it, you know, employee engagement is really simple. It's really about just sitting down with employees and asking them, what do you need? And I say this all the time: if they need a microwave, get them a microwave. If they need copier paper, get them paper. Because at the end of the day, nobody feels engaged whenever they can't do their job properly. You know, kind of goes with the whole Maslow, you know, hierarchy of needs and stuff. Like, meet their basic needs first, and then you can keep going and going and going till you have, you know, the whole self-actualization thing. But the bottom line is, is that we took a very hands-on, simplistic approach to employee engagement. Everybody went out. All, you know, From our deputy secretary at the time, Elaine Duke, one down. I, myself, I went out. To, you know, Our component leadership went out, Corey Huffman, et cetera. Everybody went out, and they sat down, and they had honest conversations with employees, and they said, these are some things I can fix these are some things i can't fix but here's what i'm willing to try to do you know to to improve um to improve your situation whether it was again at a border border patrol station or if it was at you know for a contracting specialist so th- those were how we we began and over time we put a real heavy focus also on leadership development and not just like how to have a you know a difficult conversation no i'm talking honest to goodness leadership development we had honest conversations on stage about unconscious bias, because we all have it. So let's stop pretending like we don't have it. Let's just address the fact that we do have it. And then let's talk about how do we recognize when we're having it? And then we we actually do, you know, make the kinds of changes that we need. And I touched on before about the role that employee and family readiness played in this. I think it plays a huge role in it, but so does the integration of employee and family readiness, as well as leadership development, as well as inclusive diversity. So what I've done is drawn a thread through all three of those areas. And I've said, we have to integrate this. An example of this would be you're not going to feel inclusive if you're a TSO and you're at the airport and you're worried about childcare and you're worried about like, you know, your financial situation and things like that. You're not you're never going to feel included. You're never going to feel engaged if you're worried about basic things. And so what we did is is really chipped away at what are the basic things that we can do to help improve your life? Your life, inside and outside of work, so that overall, you at least, whenever you're at work, you will feel like we cared enough about you to try to improve your life. And I think that that has paid dividends. We have made tremendous progress. I remind people of this all the time that the best places to work is based on three questions. When you really, in when you really dig into. DHS's FEV scores, and you look at things, some of our components actually have scores that are higher than most federal agencies, and they rival NASA, who is always listed as the best place to work. And so sometimes you begin to believe your story, whether it's a good story or a bad story, because that's the only story that you know. And so a lot of this has been about talking about our story in a much different way that actually instills pride in our folks that actually makes them feel like they are part of a community and delivering services to the American public in a way that they can be proud of, and that too helps to engage them and helps them to, I think, really feel like they belong within the DHS family. So what more needs to be done in this area is I think that we need to continue our focus in these three really incredibly important areas. I think that we further integration of these three areas together, further understanding of the fact that that there is a human behind all of this who's having a very human experience. And how do we how do we elevate that? How do we ensure that we have shared connections? How do we make sure that we're leading with intention. Those are all the things that I, I would like to see, you know, carry on as, as I retire at the end of this year. And I have lots of confidence that leadership and especially my you own know, Chico team, they believe in this, they understand this, and, and they certainly, I think, will carry the torch forward uh, in implementing many of these ideas into the future.
1: You know, Angie, as a follow-up that you mentioned earlier, and I think it's true, the pandemic and its impact, has, um, it continues to stress systems, but people as well. And I was wondering, what are some or what have been some and continue to be some of the noted challenges facing the department and its employees, especially, especially the frontline folks because of the pandemic? And how have you really worked with to, to kind of address these challenges there?
0: Yeah, it has taken a challenge on everybody. Um, the front line, absolutely. But you know, I was talking to someone on our front line just the other day and and I what I had said is because I'm always asked this question about, well, you know, don't you feel like you have the haves and the have nots because your front line is working and the rest of you get to be at home teleworking and shouldn't you all come back to work because you know, because they have to be on the front lines and And the thing that's funny about this is like our front line wants to be on the front line. It would kill them to have to be at home like me sitting here behind a desk, right. And with a computer, you know, with a computer and stuff and not being out riding on a horse or riding an ATV or doing a search or a pat down or, you know, all the things that they need to do to catch criminals and, human traffickers and everything else that they do on a daily basis, none of our frontline wants to be sitting at home. They want to be out there doing what they're doing. And so the challenge becomes then it's not about the haves and the have nots. It's not about the people that are at home and the people that are on the front lines. It's really about how do we address what their individual challenges are as a person within that particular mission set that they have. And then how do we make sure that that we address again, their basic needs as well as like their mission needs so that they can continue to get the job done. So as an example, PPE, which is personal protective equipment becomes incredibly important for our frontline. How do we make sure that we have plexiglass up? How do we make sure that they have the right mask? How do we make sure that that they can do their job, but do it in a such a such a way. For example, they cannot wear a mask when they're taking down a criminal. I mean, it would just simply get in the way. And you can't put up a plexiglass shield whenever, again, you're trying to take down the drug cartel in the middle of the desert. So you have to like recognize that and say, okay, then what are other ways that we can protect them? Maybe it's through our testing programs. Maybe it's through um, you know, some of the other safety protocols that we can put in place and so it goes beyond just a, an employee and family readiness program it goes into a health and safety program as well so that we can make sure that again that we're taking that we're taking care of them we have to think about all kinds of things what is the heat load with climate change uh, and no matter what side of the political coin you're on regarding climate change it's happening and so we have to think about things like what's the heat load, not just for our employees, but what about for our, for our dogs? And what about for our horses as well? And so it's this understanding that all these systems and all these systems within systems and the people that support them, that there are multiple challenges that are going on within the current environment and will go on even into the future. And how do we map those things out. How do we make sure that we understand what it is that they really need in order to be able to accomplish their jobs, and then march toward those um, in a way that makes that makes sense? And and when I say makes sense, has a common sense approach to it as well, so that we can actually implement things um, on, on their behalf.
1: That's terrific. You know, I was wondering. Let's switching gears slightly to professional development and. Um, and the HR Academy, which you mentioned earlier. Could you tell us more about the efforts in this area? And during your tenure, what has been done to build the leadership pipeline within DHS and across its components?
0: Sure. So happy to talk about this. So some of the things that we've done with our HR Academy, like we we have these um, leadership sessions where we bring in all kinds of people. Like sometimes they get to, you know, it's a chat with a Chico, which would be with me. We've brought in um, and, and kind of blending in on... Uh, the discussion around HR Academy, as well as leadership development and things that we've done. We brought in Simon Sinek the other day and I had the ability to interview him. And so that was really um, an incredible conversation as well. So we've mixed this, we've mixed everything together with like, really professionally developing our hr our hr folks by giving them the skills that they need to actually do their job but also think about things like critical thinking and data analytics and how to tell a story and how to you know how to give a really good presentation or how to give a good briefing in front of congress so we've integrated all of these different professional development things for our hr professionals that are born out of the HR Academy. But it goes way beyond that. I will tell you, whenever I walked into DHS six years ago, I was beyond impressed, and I am still incredibly impressed with um, our team. And Lena Safkar really deserves a lot of credit for this. Our team and what they have done to develop our leaders, they take non-traditional innovative approaches to developing our, our leadership and it's just really been fascinating and fun to watch. We have the CDP program, which is a development program for like our, uh, our 15s who wanna become SES. We have our Bridges program that's i think for like our 14s who want to become 15s we have executive development programs we have relationships with many of the the universities as well as the national um defense universities so there is just this uh, a whole bunch of things that that we have and we really pay attention to what does our pipeline look like because if you want a diverse ses and executive core then you have to have a diverse feeder core to begin with so we really make sure that is it are we are we not just attracting a diverse population into our into our pipeline, but are we delivering experiences for them that kind of speak to their diversity versus just a one size fits all kind of approach? And that has really been, I think, quite successful. Our components do a fantastic job as well. So again, in my career and I've have a 40-year career, I have never seen an agency do leadership development as well as DHS does it.
1: That's great. And getting more into the more technical uh, aspects of your of your role, uh, what challenges have you seen in the current state of, of the learning management system within DHS? And how are you sort of continuing to deploy it through the pandemic? And are there any opportunities in this area that you'd like to talk about?
0: Oh, goodness, the learning management system is probably going to be the death of me. Um, (laughs) That has probably been the one thing that's like, oh, my goodness. When I first got to DHS, you know, we were under the theory that you had to have one learning management system for the entire DHS. But then we discovered things like, well, FEMA has reservists, right? That are uh, that don't have necessarily have PIV cards. And and oh by the way, we train dogs too. We don't just train humans. And how are we gonna incorporate those those folks in? So basically the bottom line is like what I asked the team to do is let's just step back from all of this. Let's have a strategy that just says we're agnostic to what learning management system you're on. It just has to be integrated and connected in such a way that we can get the data out of it that we need, that we can answer Congress with all the reports, that we can, you know, that we can keep track of what kind of training our folks are doing. But let's just really truly try to do all the things that we can to make sure that whatever system or systems that we are deploying across DHS, that it's done in such a way that it Captures the training that it it allows people to be able to map out their career, like you know, have a career career path mapping a component to it, and just really again allows us to do reporting and things. So there's tons of opportunities in this area um, to improve and and to figure out what's the best way for us to deliver learning management um, through a system in in DHS and. I, I have all the confidence in the world that Neil Singh and his team, as well as our CIO, that and the components, uh, they will figure this out and they will they will deliver something that makes the most sense for DHS.
1: You know, Angie, how is the department working to enhance onboarding?
0: Well, one of the things that we're doing with onboarding that I find incredibly exciting is two things. One, we're developing ethos training that we're going to deliver for all of our new employees, so that we really—and this is Secretary Mayorkas—it's—it's uh, it's a vision of his to deliver ethos training. And what that means is, what's the values of DHS? What do we care about? As an, another example, is making sure you know a simple thing as the oath of office. So every federal employee takes the oath of office. And every two weeks, I give the oath of office to all of our brand new employees within headquarters and management. But I don't just give the oath of office. I explain that the oath that a federal employee is taking, when you take that oath of office, you are taking the same oath that our first Continental Congress took. and. In addition to that, it was only slightly modified by President Lincoln because he really wanted to make sure that civilians understood the importance of the oath of office, not just the military. So there is a long standing tradition and we take an oath of office to the Constitution of the United States, not to a political party, not to DHS, not to any political, you know, um, any administration it is taken to the U.S. Constitution. So that's just one example of how we are enhancing the onboarding experience by building all of that into uh, our our onboarding so that our employees, when you come on, it's not just, hey, fill out your health insurance forms. Hey, make sure that you get life insurance. Make sure that you know what your chart looks like. Instead, it's like we want to make sure that they understand to the core what DHS stands for, our values, our mission, and, and what it means to be a DHS employee and what it means to be a public servant. So that's one thing. The second thing we're doing to enhance the um, the onboarding is including the families. Because when you join DHS, you don't just join it by yourself. Your, your family joins DHS. Your family, your children are the ones whose birthdays get missed because you are, having to work uh, holidays and weekends and you know you have to uh, work sometimes like we did during the, the shutdown 35 days without pay and so we're just trying to make sure that our families are included in our onboarding efforts so that they feel feel like they're a part of it it's why on our employee and family uh, or our employee resource page we actually have a kids corner And we also made that page public and we did it on purpose so that the family could have access to everything the employees have and that our children, the children of our employees feel that deep connection to DHS, just the same as their mommy and their daddy. And so those are two things that I'm really, um, I'm really proud of, of DHS for taking that step in enhancing our onboarding.
1: Some advice for those considering a career in public service when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
2: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
1: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Angela Bailey, former Chief Human Capital Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. So, uh, Angie, DHS has uh, been charged with enhancing the size and quality of the federal cybersecurity workforce, and you know, to that end, would you tell us more about your efforts working with CISA in pursuing innovative ways to hire and retain the best cyber talent? And how does the cybersecurity talent management system factor into these efforts?
0: Yes, our, our work um, with CISA and the CIO shop in pursuing these innovative ways to hire and retain has really been kind of a, a highlight of my career. I've been co, um, co-leading co a council with CISA, a deputy director for oh almost six years now regarding cyber talent. And so we talk about all kinds of things. And the beauty of what cyber, uh, what CTMS has actually done for us is that it's gonna give us the ability to really go out And recruit a diverse workforce or a diverse applicant pool I should say from all segments of society so we talk about that like that's a merit system principle and it sounds good but I don't know that we've ever really practiced it in a way that I believe that DHS is going to have the ability to do that, and what I mean by that is we don't have to just throw a job announcement up on USA jobs and we call it post and pray right post post something on USA jobs and then pray somebody finds it instead we can go out and actively recruit. Um, folks like whether it's at a black you know a black hat event or it might be at a local university or it might be at a high school hackathon and so. This ability to go out and like recruit them where they're at and get that kind of talent in is just super super exciting. When we went live on CTMS on November fifteenth, we had like over ten thousand people entered our website. Over two thousand people applied for our jobs, and we have actually just sent our first um, we just sent our first applications to the hiring managers to hire within like one or two weeks of receiving those applications. That's unheard of. You know, usually it takes like goodness gracious, like 120 days just to like work through all the fascinations of the hiring process. So the thing that this has done is it gives us very quick access to people who have talents, and then we can match that talent with our mission. So the beautiful thing about that is, and I think the reason that we will retain people more so, not just about the pay. It's about our ability to match their talents and their skills against our mission needs. We'll be able to like move people in and around and they won't have to recompete, and they won't have to like apply again. Instead, it'll be like, hey, it's kind of like the gig economy, right? It'll be like, hey, we got this really cool challenge over here. I think your skills would be awesome over here. And here's what we're gonna pay you to do that. Now tomorrow, like, or, you know, a year from now, we have a different gig and a different thing that we want you to do. Hey, does this seem interesting to you? Would you like to move over here and be able to get it done? So I am super, super excited about the fact that We can pay our entry level, uh, the folks coming in, we can pay them in a competitive way. That's super exciting because we've not been able to do that up until this point. It's super exciting that we can actually have conversations with people and see what their skills are and then figure out ways to match their, their skills to where we have a mission need. I just think that that's going to be fan, fantastic and then we can reward them not just for their performance but for the ability that they or for the fact that they are able to um you know maybe get a certification that we need or or develop themselves in such a way that it is beneficial to the agency and to them as well so some just really cool things that i think are going to make us highly super competitive with this with the private sector And bar none, we still have one of the best missions around, right? Because we're protecting the homeland and you cannot undervalue the fact that we have a mission that is one of the best missions around and that in and of itself is super exciting.
1: That's an excellent point. So, you know, given your experience, Angie, and your expertise, would you elaborate on the potential implications of a hybrid workforce model for the federal government departments, such as DHS, what are some of the key opportunities in this area, and and does emerging technology play a role in aiding with any adjustment to this kind of model?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm often asked this question, Michael, and the the one thing that's that I've that I've um, been thinking about for a long time, and I usually you know try to address is the fact that we have always worked in a hybrid environment. Clear back to the beginning of of time and even in our caves, right? We didn't all sit in the same cave and quote, unquote, work together. So we've always worked in a hybrid environment. And I think sometimes we think that, you know, we, we think to ourselves, this is a new, new normal or new environment. it's like, no, I've never had the luxury of my workforce being in my office. You know, all 300 plus employees aren't always in the office at the same time. They're off doing all kinds of things. And so the key opportunities, I think in this area, is for us to almost stop thinking that this is somehow a new norm or this is somehow different and instead saying well you know i've always been able to like reach out to somebody who works in california and pick up the phone and say Hey, how's it going? What are you doing? You know, are there things that I can do to help you? Because they've not been in the office with me to begin with. But where technology, I think, is helping us and is playing a role is that technology is giving us the ability to now see each other. And we probably have had this for a long time, but we've never really made use of it. So while we've used email and we've used, you know, picking up the phone to work in this very hybrid environment, I think that what the technology gives us now is. Is the ability to see each other on a very real time basis, which pulls us together. Because, as you know, like when you're together, you can read the energy in the room. You can you can feel whether or not people are getting what you're saying and stuff. And so now, I think it's really kind of cool because, you know, and while technology doesn't get you in the room. I think we're getting better at it, right? We're getting better at reading people's faces and their body language and everything uh, through this. And who the heck knows, you know, technology, at the rate it's going, we're probably going to have holograms and everything else. And so it may be this incredibly cool experience that at some point in time, we're not just seeing you on a screen, but we see your hologram. Or, you know, there's this little like robot that has your your picture and stuff and it just kind of follows you around and things so that you're actually part of it. So. I think it's exciting that technology will give us an opportunity to get closer together as we perhaps in some ways work further apart. And so I I think that there's this wonderful blend that we're going to see going on. But my number one thing I just really, I think, want to stress is we've always worked in a hybrid model. We've always done it. And we need to just step back and say, oh, How did that work? How have I been doing this for so long? I've been working like in in this model, what has worked well and how can I make use of the current technology to make it work even better?
1: Angie, what will you remember most about your public and government service?
0: I will absolutely remember the people the most. Um, There's been so many successes and there's been some spectacular failures. But what I will remember the most are the people. I have lifelong friendships from people that I met the very first day I started on July 14th, 1981, and I met uh, this young lady named Debbie who went on to be the godmother of my children. I will remember the friends that I made in DOD, um, Jill and Eva and Sharon and, and Jan, and, and, and I will remember that, you know, that to this day we still get together and the friends that I made at OPM and the fact that they were there for me whenever I had you know some personal tragedy a personal tragedy that happened to me and they were there they cared they cared about me and so and then at DHS just the wonderful people that I got to meet as a part of the pandemic that I wouldn't have never got to meet if I would not have had the ability to email them and and to you know connect with them and you know, just most importantly, like my wonderful team that I have within the OCHICO office and the leadership within DHS. And I will remember how well we worked together to try to get things done. I will remember how every day we got up, despite whatever crisis we were facing, we, we got up, we didn't hit the snooze alarm. We got out of bed and we came to work and we sat down and maybe it was, you know, some tension or maybe sometimes we just um, it wasn't going well, but every single day, everyone tried to do their utmost best. And that's what I think I will remember most is the heart and the soul of the federal workforce and just um, how incredible they they really are and getting and delivering things on behalf of the American public.
1: Well, that's a great segue into my final question, Angie. And that is, what advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service?
0: Go for it like and and enjoy it and make the most of it and have a zigzag career and go after the opportunities. Don't chase the money. And when I say opportunities, the government is 2.8 million employees worldwide take advantage of every single opportunity that is put in front of you, because it's the sky's the limit on what you can do with your career in public service. And uh, that's really the best advice. That's what I did. Uh, And it made for such a rewarding career because I worked in so many different federal agencies and got to meet so many wonderful people along the way. And, uh, you know, and so, Take advantage of it and and just enjoy the journey because it's, it's well worth it.
1: Well, um, Angie, I want to thank you for joining us today. But uh, more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country.
0: Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. This was and I, I really enjoyed this conversation with you. So thank you.
1: This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Angela Bailey, former Chief Human Capital Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
2: How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.
1: WFED Washington, WTOPFM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, non-political, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.